time lapse. This is State of Demand Gen. Chris Walker, and welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. If you haven't heard already, we are back for season two of Demand Gen Live featuring Megan Bowen at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. We are leaning in hard to the AMA style. So what that means is that we will set the floor with a couple key topics, timely, relevant experiments that we literally just ran this morning that we figured something out that we can share with you. And then we'll transition to the AMA style. So you get on, you ask your question. A lot of other people, demand marketers, salespeople are on there asking questions. You can learn a lot, get to meet people and build a little community, maybe get a new job. Whatever you want to accomplish, we're doing it in Demand Gen Live. So we'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. Hey, welcome to the 417 Marketing Podcast. I've got Chris Walker on the show with us today. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ryan. Great to see you, man. I appreciate the invite and happy to be here. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great to have you, man. I've been following your content on LinkedIn for a long time and has spread out to the podcast and video stuff from there. So I'm excited to bring your insight to our listeners. So if we could just get started, if you want to tell us about your story, how you got into marketing and some of the things you learned along the way, I think we'll start there. Yeah, I think my journey is kind of interesting Um, for people that don't know me. I'll run through it quickly just so we can get into the good stuff. But um, I studied engineering in in college, I think is a unique background in marketing. And I joined a very large profitable holdings company that owned about 60 technology and engineering type of companies that were about all each subsidiary was like 10 to a hundred million in revenue. And I moved around those companies and I was supposed to be doing, you know, product development engineering. And I quickly started to figure out the real value is going out and talking to customers and figuring out how to position the product and so that we can sell it more and also talking to them to understand what else we need to build. And so the whole first three or four or five years of my career was all about getting out, moving from an internal employee to moving out into the market. And it was from a different lens about what products were we supposed to build? But it, the key was that I started to deeply start understand customers and what they did and what they thought. And oftentimes the things that you think your customers are thinking are not what they're thinking. They're thinking something completely different. You've made a lot of assumptions. So I loved going out there and talking to customers and having a conversation, having them and coming back to the CEO and being said, I know that you think that we're really strong in this segment. But the last time you talked to a customer in this segment was four years ago. And I just went out there and talked to them and we're losing market share by the day because we don't pay attention to them anymore. So those are insights that you need. And then moved into venture funded companies in 2016, um, most notably a company called Vapotherm, which was a, is a medical device startup that eventually IPO'd and continued to be very successful. Um, and I built a demand gen function inside of that company by myself from the ground up. The company didn't know how to do demand gen. It was 100% outbound field sales, SDRs, field sales. Um, let's pound our way into accounts. You're selling into hospitals here. There's like people that are just walking into hospitals trying to find someone to talk to, to have a meeting, to hope that someone buys something. It was incredibly inefficient. If you look, if you split off just the net new revenue and the cost to acquire net new revenue, if you exclude expansion revenue, it was really bad. Um, and so just noticed that I was like, where is the biggest place for me to make the impact on this company? And I was like, okay, we need to figure out how to, how to not have that happen, how we can have people that are looking to talk to our sales reps that convert to customers that move through a process that buy two units and then go and buy 50 more in six months. 
And so I started doing that. And the things that happened during, during that process was, I, I was very lucky to be in that situation. The company had a good product, was very well funded, was looking to grow, and I was able to provide a path to growth. And so the executives didn't know how to measure what I was doing. And so I figured out the way to measure it without someone telling me what to do. And so I just use common sense. It's a big, it's a big theme here in B2B SaaS marketing is the idea of using common sense. So I just use common sense. If I'm going to go to the CEO and I want to try and go from spending $50,000 a month to raise my budget to 2 million a year or whatever, I'm going to need to show him something that makes him compelled to do that. <laughs> right. And so figured out how to measure things in a way that makes sense. The second piece is that no one told me what to do. So they didn't know how to measure. So I set the metrics and they didn't know what I should be doing. So I started to do the things that I would read in a HubSpot blog and a Salesforce ebook. And I did them and I did them very well. And I looked at them and measured them. And I was like, yeah, the shit gets us leads, but no revenue. Not enough revenue for me to go back and ask for another million dollars in budget. And so when I found those things out, I started doing things that just felt made more sense. Why don't we ungate the content? If people see this information about the clinical trial that came about our, uh, about our product and they know that our product went through this clinical trial and that it's better than the thing that they're using right now, they'll be more likely to using it. So why are we gating this? Why don't we just give it to people? You know what I mean? And so when you ungate content, you change not only the ability for people to see it, but you actually change your mindset about what content you create. So that was a huge unlock for me. Um, and then that company eventually IPO'd, was successful. I looked out in the world and I looked out in SaaS and I was like, what I did there was very special. I was in like this little echo chamber and nobody told me what to do. I did something very different than what the entire market's doing. I did the stuff that they're doing right now. I know that my way works better. Let's go and, and help people solve these issues. And so um, started this company about two years ago now and we've quickly grown. We work with uh, 20 companies and have 16 employees and continue to, to grow with that. And then one part for the, and uh, I, I you talked about who's, who's listening, your audience. And so there was one kind of component that I didn't cover in that story is between 2013 and 2016, I built two e-commerce companies from my bedroom. I'm like the beginning, I was 23 years old when I was doing this. I didn't make, I mean, we got into the hundreds of thousands in revenue. We didn't make a ton of revenue, but I learned a ton and I figured out how to run when you only have $20 margin to sell whatever you're selling on Amazon search ads and it's your own money in advertising, you figure out very quickly whether or not you can acquire a customer for less than $20. And if you go out into venture world, nobody that's running the marketing actually cares about that number. And that is a lens that I look through that gives me an advantage. Man. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so much gold in that story. Um, so many things that we can dig into. Um, uh, so yeah, in, in, I, I follow Perry Marshall and, and his group is called planet Perry. And, and, um, basically there's this saying, uh, that most of them hold to, and it's that if you haven't learned marketing, um, on your own dime, you shouldn't be marketing for others. And it's, uh, I mean, it's true. Those that, that know the risk, they know the pain of wasting money. That. Um, and they, they know what that feels like. You spend a thousand dollars of your own money on Amazon, Google search ads, broad match, trying to sell something and get zero dollars in sales, which I've done. You don't make that mistake again when someone gives you a hundred thousand dollar budget. And so I totally agree with that. You also understand when it's your own money and you're running Instagram ads and you're not getting people to convert direct response, 
but you're seeing more people search the brand in Google and then buy stuff that way, you can understand what's actually happening. Oh, they saw the brand and then they came and buy stuff and no Shopify or whatever we're selling through doesn't say that it came from an Instagram ad, but I just ran the ads and I turned them off. And then the next day I turned them on and I did it and the same thing happened. And so, you know, B2B marketers get handcuffed into like proving to their CFO that the lead came from Instagram. And in order to prove that it came from Instagram, you have to use the, the channel in the wrong way to prove it, which then doesn't get you the outcome that you want, which is why a lot of companies don't spend money on social unless they're trying to get ebook downloads and things like that in order to get leads, which is really just lead gen sales. Like you might as well get, I say it a lot. I'm trying to pound it even harder because you want to pay $50 for an email address on Instagram. You might as well get zoom info. You can pay less than a dollar for the exact same information and you're going to get the exact same type of quality of whether or not they filled out your ebook and never read it. Or if you just cold call them, the conversion rate to a customer will be about the same. Yeah. Oh man. Well, that sets our path for the episode. <clears throat> so let's let's talk about tracking a little bit, and then we can dive into some of the the deeper things behind what you just said. Um, so tracking, obviously, if you're reporting to uh, leadership that that needs to know, you know, why things are happening, what's driving money, and and why you need a budget increase. Um, how do you actually? prove to them that things like branding are important and you know how do you make a case for things that don't directly lead to revenue so i've a lot i've been in a lot of companies i've gone through this struggle i understand that it's hard i have the luxury now that we work with companies that already believe in a lot of the things that i'm saying and so there's not a ton of convincing and so that's an insight for people on their own like you want to spend a bunch of time wasting years trying to convince someone to see things your way or just find people that already see it your way. You innovate and you grow and you do a lot of things when you're just not busy convincing people of things that they don't want to be convinced of. And and actually, before you keep going, that is how you do it with a customer, too. Um, I mean, you, what you just said, like, don't try and convert the unconverted. Totally. If, you, if people don't want your stuff, don't try and sell them your stuff. Yeah, but ultimately we align on a specific business outcome, right? And so the business outcome that normally gets is marketing sourced, qualified pipeline and revenue. And when you understand that when it's marketing source, they're coming to you and they're saying, I want to buy something and you can get that done in a ton of different ways. And most of the ways that you can get that done are not trackable. It gives you a lot of freedom to with the, whoever you're being, you know, having this discussion with to say, look, if you're right now, we're at 400 K ARR a month in qualified marketing pipeline, you want to go to 2 million. If we get to 2 million, are you going to ask me questions about how things are, are how it's being created or not? Is this what you need to get to? I'm going to have to work re- really hard to 5X your pipeline. It's going to take some experimentation. We're not going to get there tomorrow. But if we get there, does it matter where it came from or not? And you can have that conversation up front. It's a really interesting conversation to have. Um, and then when you get there, because it's, there's, no, there's no formula here. Like there's no exact roadmap to moving your pipeline in millions of dollars. Otherwise there would be, everyone would be a millionaire. You know what I mean? And so the idea that we're creating a system where different channels are used for different purposes. Google's going to catch everything that when you really break it down, capture 
capture existing demand in intent channels where people go to buy what you sell. They go to your website, they go to Google and they search for the category of the thing that they, they, that you do. You sell SaaS, they're going to G2 or Captera and they're going to click on someone's website and they're going to go there and they're going to ask for a demo in those places. You're going to be able to track it directly because that's where people funnel through. And so track those and measure those, but you cannot lose sight of all the things that need to happen before someone does that. Right. Yeah. And and if you if you if you recognize all the things that need to happen before that, before someone goes to Google and searches that, just say it's a complex B2B sale. You're selling to CFOs. The CFO probably needs to know 10 things about the problem that they have. They probably have to they have to definitely know your brand. They have to connect the brand with the problem. They have to see the problem in real life. The problem has to be large enough for them at that exact moment to deprioritize everything else and prioritize solving it. They have to go and probably they're going to talk to three or four people in Revenue Collective or other people they trust about whether or not they've used those tools. And then they're going to go to one of those channels. And so how do you get all that stuff done beforehand? That's what I that's I think really if you look at the secret sauce like we don't track anything on my LinkedIn. We have an idea of based on the engagement and who's engaging and things like that. Zero deals are tagged to LinkedIn in the CRM. Not because not because we don't ask people, but because an automated system with a ton of volume will never catch that stuff. And when you have a large, complex company, you're not going to manually check those things. And if you manually check them, you're going to be wrong most of the time. Like the idea where you put the field where it's like, how did you hear about us on your demo form? You're not getting the, the real information. Um, and so that's that's sort of the way I, I look at things. I recognize that awareness channels need to be measured with awareness metrics. And I, I, I do a very good job tracking. Did someone see our Facebook ad and then convert on a demo within the next 30 days? And we can we can show that and we recognize that we'll never we'll never be able to catch all of the impact. That type of system will miss a lot of people. You fall outside of the attribution window. The coworker converts instead of the person that, that got the ad. The person that got the ad was the person's wife and then told the person the her husband or wife to go and convert on it because they thought it was cool pair of shoes or whatever you're trying to sell. There's so many other things that can happen that would break that type of attribution system. And when you when you become comfortable in the fact that we are going after a business level goal and we have a good understanding of how the channel is influencing that goal, then you don't need as much, you know, direct attribution tracking to it. And this, so this is ultimately comes down to why companies will spend 80% of their budget on Google search. It's because they, it's the closest to the bottom of the funnel and it's just, for you, you end up being a you're a, you're a commodity player at that point. Yeah. Well, and you pause the ads, and then your money goes away. And so, you know what happened there. So, man, you you talk like we're dealing with people here, and and like they all have lives or something. Um, it's, it's confusing. I don't understand how to how to deal with that. Um, man. So, in. In standard B2B, if you so a lot of our, our listeners are probably not going to have uh, a lot of the lingo um, from B2B marketing. Could you maybe just explain a little bit of the difference between branding and demand gen for those that maybe aren't quite at that level and how they're kind of how they're performed maybe today? And, and we can talk about what's wrong with that. I honestly don't think they're different. 
Um, the thing that I will distinguish for people is the difference between brand and branding. Branding is what people think is brand. Your colors, your logo, what font type you use, blah, blah, blah. This stuff matters. It's just, it's just that is the visual element of the brand. What actually matters in the brand is how it gets consistently communicated to your customers and the emotions that they, that they feel and how they connect, whether to the problems and the products that you solve, the problems that you solve and the products that you sell, um, which comes through generally awareness. Um, and then you think back at how you create awareness. A lot of people know about me. How did that happen? I gave people good information. They liked the information, which then made them aware of me. Less people, less people would know about me if we made a hundred cold calls every, if I made a hundred cold calls every day, instead of making one video for LinkedIn every day for the past 365 days. And that's just the truth. Um, and so when I think about like branding or brand versus demand, there is no difference. Brand drives the most demand. When people know about you, the product that you offer, and clearly understand the problems that you solve, and you are, whether uniquely differentiated, most well-known, there's a lot of different ways to win, more people will be aware of the problems that you solve, which therefore leads them to seeing them more in real life, and when they see them more in real life, they think about you first. <laughs> and so, um, and, and whether or not people wanna believe that their product is so much better than their competitors, your customer products are becoming commoditized. Even when we look at sophisticated SaaS, they're converging on one another. There's not that much different, which which leads it to brand. And so I think that a lot of people have a different definition between brand and demand than me. Right. I don't, I don't think a lot of people would answer the question the way that I just answered it to you. The reason being is I see them as one and the same brand is a component of the system. When people think about demand, they they, in my view, misdefine it into lead gen contact generation, push them through marketing automation, give them a score and try and spit them out to your sales team. And they're just as bad as when they came in at the beginning. So um, it seems like there's a lot to to think about in terms of understanding the customer and, and being able to um, then get in front of them where they are in the process before they need what you have to offer. Um, so how, how do you structure um, gaining that understanding about the customer, doing that research, and then how do you build a strategy around that? It's the missing piece in most businesses. It truly is. Um, and so the the first step is that you need to make a choice that you are doing customer research, not selling to people. And so at the when I when I started to really move into SaaS, like we were sort of just like a marketing consultant, right? I found an opening, wanted to figure out a little bit more. I had a, a podcast that wasn't even a real podcast. <laughs> And I invited eight CMOs and VPs of marketing from the companies that I wanted to work with. None of them had even heard about me. But I invited them on the SaaS CMO podcast. We didn't even have a name for it, but let's just call it the SaaS CMO podcast. They're pumped to come on it. I talked to them for an hour. I understand what their life is like. I understand the lingo that they use. I say things. I understand how they respond. I say things intentionally to feel how they react. 
And then you can test messaging. You can figure things out. You understand the situation better. You do six to eight of those interviews. You start to see repeating themes. Once you see six or eight in a row from a broad sample size, I'm taking that a majority of the market feel like either has that perception or is going through that problem or blah, blah, blah. And then you use that information to then go and communicate to the rest of the market, as opposed to individually trying to sell to those eight CMOs that don't want to hear from you. And so it gives you the insight. It gives you the insight on where to focus. We don't focus on, um, we don't have a lot of product led freemium. Like we focus with companies with a sales motion, with a sales team because we feel like we have a better version of business development than what's happening inside of those companies right now. And so the comp- we have been able to figure out very clearly who is the best fit, which requires saying that certain companies aren't the best fit. We'd be probably have more revenue if we let anyone come and work with us. Um, but you'd put the business at a lot more risk, I'd put my team through a lot more stress. Um, and I'm not, not here to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot easier to, to grow a business with less revenue, but more successes, less revenue in a short period of time, but more successes so that you can look, you know, play the long game. Yeah. Um, which seems to be the way that you kind of help businesses grow as well. I mean, you're getting some, some quick wins, but, uh, but that long game is more important. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's not get confused. A lot of our customers are venture funded with an exit plan within five years. And so like, um, we're playing, we're playing the long game to an extent Our it's very fascinating that when you play the long game, you get better short-term results too. It's weird. It's like you're treating people like people instead of trying to get their money right now. It's, it's really fascinating. And so like, um, it's weird because in people are, I'm like, we're playing the long game and I've realized I've recognized not to say that anymore because people don't know what I mean. We act not like we're acting. Our behaviors map to long-term actions, knowing that doing the right long-term actions drive better short-term results. than if we were acting in the short term, which is what most companies do because they're a lot of their marketing is actually sales. Right. Right. And so a, a question about that. Um, how do you feel about reporting on on monthly performance? I mean, obviously, you have to keep track of what's going on. You have to have a pulse of, of um, current success and everything. But but in marketing, I, I mean, isn't, you know, a, a month just kind of an arbitrary, you know, measurement of time? Um, it doesn't necessarily dictate the success of your marketing campaign. We look at things monthly. Um, we don't deem whether or not something is a success or failure in month one necessarily, right? So like over time we're looking and then as quickly as I can, I'm breaking that into quarters. Because when you look at it quarterly is when you really show the impact of something, um, right? Like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in pipeline, but you do that every month, you look at that at a year, you know, a couple million dollars extra in pipeline that you didn't have last year. And so um, I've, I've learned on those things, but I do believe that monthly, especially with a good set of historical clean data, gives you a very good sense about what's happening. We know, we, you know, December, December demos were better than we've ever had this year. What happened last December? Was last December also the best? Oh, no, it doesn't look like it is. It looks like what we're doing is actually moving the needle for us. This is not seasonal. Um, so things like that do help. Um, we we align 
mainly on um, long-term quarterly goals, which then must be broken down in order to, to understand whether or not you're tracking to them on a monthly basis. Yeah. So you're looking at a month as more of like a stepping stone than, you know, the, the end results like, well, how did this month go? Should we, should we quit? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're, why, why wait till the end of the month to make a change, right? If you see something that's there and it's on the 14th day of the month and the change is obvious, then just make the change, right? Like there's no sense in having this like period of time where you go through and review and make changes, just make them. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So, um, you have a podcast as well. Um, you were talking earlier about, uh, 10,000 subscribers now, uh, congrats, by the way, it's awesome. Um, what do you think has led to the success of that? And, um, what impact has the podcast had on your business? Number one is consistency. And these are, I'm saying them in one, two, three, they're in no particular order. They, I've found that they're all critical ingredients to making the right recipe. You need all of them. Consistency. We we publish three to five times a week, which is way more than any other of our competing podcasts. When you have more content, you learn faster, you distribute more, you get higher in the rankings for search, you get more reviews. People that want the content more frequently that the, than the podcast publishing every month are going to come to you because they want it three times a week, and that's what you're giving them. Um, so consistency in publishing, which then creates agile speed of getting better. The more you do something, the better that you'll get at it um, than if you were doing it at, less, at a less frequency. Um, the next one is we don't, our, our style is uniquely different than how most companies will build a podcast. Most companies will build a podcast with a host and then they'll just interview people that are like their buyer and they'll just let their buyers talk. Um, we don't, we don't do that, right? Like a lot of it is actually our perspective. I'm very selective on who comes onto our podcast because most people do not align with the things that we believe in. Um, and so we're not out here just trying to like trade off of this, some CMO, the CMO of Salesforce's brand to get awareness. We're trying to bring people on here that have great insights that we can deliver to people that are going to help them get better that we also believe in. So I take a lot of accountability in presenting information that we believe will help people be more successful. Um, so I think that I think that's a big one. Um, consistency, just our, like the overall format, I think has been helpful. Distribution is number three. Like, can can you get people in? Is an incredibly hard challenge for podcasts, um, especially in your first thousand. There's a there's like a weird growth trajectory that we're figuring out right now, where you need to get over the curve of where your current listeners share it with other people, which I find is somewhere between 500 and a thousand type of like subscriber range, where the things that I'm looking for, people are sharing it and people are listening to more than one episode. And you can feel that if people like the content, they're going to tell you, I get a ton of, I knew the podcast was working when we had a hundred subscribers because I got messages from people that said, Hey, I listened to three episodes. I did what you said. And this worked. I did what you said and I got a new job. And then, and then six months later, we have sales conversations that I've been listening to your podcast for three months. And now I would love to talk about you solving this problem for us. 
And so people that are so focused on the short term wouldn't see the positive signals, wouldn't do it frequently enough, would give up before any of the good stuff happened. Um, so distribution, getting people in initially, we had a LinkedIn audience. We had probably 20,000 followers when we started this. We had a way in. We also used other ways. We brought people on that aligned with our views that had big audiences. We we had them on as a guest. We took their stuff. We chopped it up. We shared it with them. They shared it with the podcast. We got people that way. Um and then we did we do like a live a, a live version of it, which has driven a lot of people through too as well. Um, also, the live format requires you to demonstrate a lot of expertise when it's not planned. Um, and so, those are some of the the keys to success that that I found with the podcast. And and lastly, doing it for the right reasons. I think uh, over time, if you look at any marketing behavior. I don't think I've ever said this this clearly. If you look at any marketing behavior at the beginning, the reason it works so well is because people are doing it with the right intent. And then people hear, oh, if I start a podcast, I'll generate a billion dollars. I'm going to go start a podcast. And they do it for all of the wrong reasons. The content's not good and it fails. And then eventually that's why certain marketing channels decline. The same thing happened on SEO at the beginning. I talk about this a lot. When SEO started, it was expert people writing cutting edge information inside of written blogs for people to study and they did it on a consistent basis. Rand Fiskin did it. You know what I mean? People, a lot of people know Rand. He built it on SEO. Now what is it? Outsource people that have no actual expertise writing blogs, stuffing it with keywords to show up in the top 10 and tracking those metrics. And that's it's just a different store and they're looking at web traffic, not on impact. I measure everything on impact not on not on like vanity metrics same thing if you look at linkedin linkedin's in a good spot right now but over time that's going to decline more people are going to push garbage content through it they're going to do spam messages they're going to build fake profiles they're going to have a bunch of shit and eventually the stuff in that platform will decline it happens on every social platform it's supply and demand and so um you got to be doing it for the right reasons otherwise it's not going to get you anywhere yeah yeah. And so those right reasons you, you mentioned earlier, but if you want to just bring people around full circle, what are those right reasons that you have to focus on while you're doing this? Having a um, unique pers- unique way of looking at things that changes people's perspective that leads them to doing things better and accomplishing things that they want. That's the content formula in a simple, very simple way. Is if, if peop- you need to know who you're going after. If I was going after all people, the content would not be as relevant. When I know that I'm going after B2B, sales-led, venture-funded, CMOs and VPs of marketing inside of blah, blah, blah industry, the content's a lot more specific. You gotta know who, who you're going after, you have to understand them at a deep level. You have to understand how, where you can add value, what things that you see that they don't see, how you can teach them those things in a way that they understand and give them actionable advice that they can implement, that then they can see the result that they're expecting. Yeah, that's And a lot of people in my type of business won't do that because they think that if people know the information, they wouldn't hire them. Uh, yeah. Which is a very scarcity mindset. Yeah. I mean, who's got the time to, to, to be all things in their own company, you know, especially the larger companies. Just, um, but yeah, I understand, you know, the, the fear that people have there. Um, the KPI on, on 
content is how many people send you a message saying that they consumed it and and are now feel like they're doing something better because of it. Yeah, that's tangible value. So when people, you know, are talking about this this nebulous idea of creating value for people that Chris Walker is just giving us the that's KPI. The KPI. Yeah. I love it. It's qualitative though, which is why a lot of companies don't like measuring it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk qualitative metrics a little bit. Um is there a way to to track that or generate more or is this just something where you just have to provide that type of tangible value over time well if you're if you're trying to so you know with with quantitative metrics you're trying to you know like increase budget or or you're trying to you know adjust bids or targeting or whatever for your you know increase in metrics um, you know for your your kpis there with qualitative metrics what do you do to increase the the kpis there the qualitative indicators are early signals to the quant- the future quantitative indicators and so you just you find things before they show up in your dashboard when I went to the I went to the customers in whatever it was 2015 and I talked to them and I knew that they still had the product and they were still ordering it but a lot of people were moving to our competitor and that was going to happen at some time and I knew it six months before anyone at the company saw it on the dashboard when the company people stopped reordering it because they chose a different product the qualitative insights just give you the information faster I knew the podcast was working when 10 people sent me messages. I knew that people were, I knew eventually that people were going to come inbound and ask for us to help with stuff because of that signal. I knew that the LinkedIn content was going to work when I got seven likes on posts because two CMOs at companies that we wanted to sell to commented on it and left a thoughtful comment. Like those, those are indicators. Um, and so those, I think that's the, the right way to look at it in such a quantitative dashboard AI, blah, 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 automated way, you miss all of the important signals that are right in front of you. Yeah. So do you think that it's a better idea to reach out and, and proactively get some of that qualitative data, you know, through like surveys or or phone calls or, or, you know, you know, focus groups or or things like that? Um, Or do you think it's a better idea to um, do it all kind of inbound and, and just provide that value and then hope it comes in or a mix or how do you feel about that? Once you have attention, you, if you know how to use it, you can get feedback without asking for it. Right? Like I, can put out a post on LinkedIn that has a pretty extreme point of view and understand how people react. Some people are like, you're an idiot and they present 20 objections. And then I know the 20 objections and I'm not here to convince someone about whatever I wrote. I'm here to listen to what they respond with. So I have the objections. I have the people that agree. I get the story from You know, Sam in Indianapolis, who's like, yeah, you know, I tried that, blah, blah, blah. This is what I found. He actually is right. It worked. But you get those and then you read. I spend a lot of time reading comments because that's a lot of the reason that I use LinkedIn at this point. Um, And so I don't and the soliciting positive feedback for your podcast isn't going to work. You know what I mean? That stuff has to happen on its own. Um, And so I've never. I've never been a NPS 
did we exceed your expectations, you know, on a scale of one to 10 after we did a support ticket and didn't solve your issue? Like that type, a lot of companies check the box with those things. Um, I do an initial cut of qualitative market research in person with people. And then if I need to layer on quantitative data to convince a larger executive team on a certain point, then I will execute the survey to our buyers. And I'll say, I did one in 2016 that was like, what's the first thing that you do when you um, are looking for a new respiratory product? And oddly enough, the people, what they said was, I ask a colleague at another facility which is a really interesting insight. And what were we trying to do? We were trying to shove them into a meeting with our rep. And what should we have been doing? Hey, Jimmy across the street actually uses your pro- or uses our product. He was using the one that you're using before. Would love to connect you with him for lunch. We'll actually pay for it um, or, or whatever, right? Um, and you know, you guys can talk about the changes that he's made and what he's learned. And if you had that insight, you completely change your go to market. You don't have 40 SDRs banging the phones trying to get meetings for reps where people don't want that. It's completely misaligned with how people are buying things, Um, especially in like a medical type of setting. It's just like, you know, physicians don't want sales reps running around their hospital, just not what they want. So um, anyway, that was an example of, you know, qualitative I went to the sales meetings. I felt the way that people were responding to our messaging on a first cold meeting. I knew that it was it didn't feel right. And then I did the survey, which then showed in a larger sample size with a very large portion of the market to the team about things like that. There was like 20 questions on that survey that pointed out key insights that um, that were important for how we changed our go to market. Nice. Yeah, that's a great story. Great example. So. We're getting a little bit closer to the end of the call. I've got a couple questions, and then I think I'll uh, I'll go to our, our wrap up. Um, but it's it's a little off topic. Let's let's talk about channels real quick. Um, so you talked about channels declining. Um, looking at at social media, um, Facebook, which I, I know you guys use a, a, a lot, and then LinkedIn. Um, paid ads. Um, what do you see happening in, in those two channels with the the paid ads in particular? Yeah, I'm going to kind of frame this. And by the way, I don't have a hard stop. So if we can go over, we can. But the um, I want to frame this up with a story about how Facebook ads has changed over the past five years. I've been running Facebook ads since 2013. First to sell consumer, you know, e-commerce type of stuff. It started in 2015 to sell medical devices to physicians and people thought I was crazy. And then we did millions of, then we did millions of dollars in revenue off pure Facebook ads the next year. And so in 2015, when we were running Facebook ads, I would run the ad exactly who we were going after would comment, leave a thoughtful comment on it. They would like the ad. They would they would click on it, carefully consume it, and then leave their point of view. It was a incredible market research tool. That doesn't happen anymore. You get mostly you get mostly spam. The platform has changed. It was nice when we ran that, and then we could publish it organically after with t- with two thousand likes and a hundred comments from emergency physicians. The platform has changed, right? And so that's just it paints a picture. Like we get two likes on our ads now. We get very few comments unless they're spam, but the impact's still there. 
It's just the dynamic has changed. And so, um, a lot, a lot of stuff changes with, with Facebook people. What I just said to people, people, a lot of people have no idea what I, what I just said or how, or why it matters. You need to be at this level of detail to understand how to make it work for you. You can't just go to have someone and say, run Facebook ads. It's ultimate. Then it ultimately comes down to whether or not you hired the right person. Um, and so I've, especially as a business owner, I would recommend figuring this out and picking the top channel. It might not, for a lot of businesses, it might not be Facebook anymore. Um, for local geo-targeted businesses, you only can sell to Indianapolis or whatever. I've been using that example a lot today for whatever reason. You can only sell to Indianapolis. You should probably, like Facebook and Instagram, probably does work. If you're selling to super high executives in Indianapolis, maybe LinkedIn to like a high ticket event would actually be the way to, to, to do it. But as of really recently, from the election forward to the holiday season, CPMs on Facebook went up a lot. Um, it got to a place where I, we were paying relatively comparable comparable amount of money on LinkedIn versus Facebook, in which case we allocated a lot more to LinkedIn. We're in B2B, the targeting's better. We use Facebook for scale. And so we use Facebook for, for scale and their ML algorithm, and we use LinkedIn for narrow targeted, like we're going after CFOs with comp people 200 to 500 employees. I want, to, I want to put something very specific to them. It's a lot more, it's a lot wider on, on Facebook, knowing that more people use the platform. You have Facebook and Instagram. There's a lot of different formats. Their algorithm is way better than LinkedIn's and knowing who to serve the ad to. Um, and so those are some of the, the like things that I see today, um, the things that are working best for us as of recently. Instagram story placement works very well. Um, we used to spend uh, less of a total, if you took the total pie, more of the allocation would go to Facebook than LinkedIn six months ago than it does today. We spend more proportionally more on LinkedIn today. Um, we figured out custom conversions because we don't do direct response on any social channel because I just know it doesn't drive the right result. And so if you can't do direct response, you got to figure out a way to measure it when you're going to spend $50,000 a month on LinkedIn. So we align to, you know, view through a demo conversions on cold audiences within an attribution window. We get aligned on that. We measure it. We set a target. And then we start moving off of that, um, which is basically the same thing as direct response without needing to collect that contact information and have it inside of Marketo. Right. Like it's basically the same thing. Um, and so we're pushing a lot more on to, to LinkedIn recently. I think it has a good, a good scale. It's more expensive. We used, we've used impression bidding on landing page objectives, which I doubt is best practice, but we've been able to get CPMs down for going after CISOs or CFOs or thing, you know, C-suite people from 120, $150 CPMs down to 55, 60 makes a big difference. So, um, so we've been doing some of that when you want to open up for, when you lower the bids, you lower the reach. And so if you want to open it up and like really get to scale, you end up paying higher CPMs. But, um, those are the things. And we spend, a, we spend a lot of effort recently on product marketing. Um, and so it used to be a lot more focused on, uh, top of funnel and case studies and things like that. And what we're starting to find is like, People don't even know about the product. 
like <laughs> as much as as much as companies want to believe that everyone in their industry knows about them and every single feature and value proposition of their product 99.9% of people have no idea and they're not thinking about you and so that's we spend a lot more time there because it drives the largest impact and then as you start moving up in larger and larger spends we move up the funnel but honestly like i think that a lot of the work that should that we're doing for paid right now for companies at high spend should actually be accomplished organic I would much rather, instead of spending $5,000 a month to promote a blog, I would much rather them have a good organic channel where they talk about that, whatever they're talking about in the blog on a podcast. It's just that a, a, lot, of, a lot of companies aren't there. Um, and you need to get that work done somehow. And so if the work's not getting done organic, we're going to have to get it done unpaid. Um, in order to have the whole system running. And so eventually the the vision is that over time you build an organic engine podcast, LinkedIn, and then whatever other channels come in the future that then over time allows you to spend less on media because a lot of that, the, the impact happens through brand. Right. Right. Awesome. How about uh, how about on Google Ads? Um, what are your what are your thoughts on some of the changes that have been happening there? So we use we use Google Ads a lot differently than most people. So I'm going to call that out first. Um, most people that use Google Ads will buy broad match category terms. You're selling a sale. You're selling sales engagement software, and you're going to bid on the term sales engagement. Broad Ugh. broad modified. The reason being is because you see a million searches. Yep. And look at how many impressions we got. You're going to get a lot of clicks too. And then what they're going to do is in order to make it look, they're not doing this maliciously, right? Like they're not thinking about this, but what they're trained to do is drive sales engagement, broad, modified, matched to an ebook download. And they're going to put them in a squeeze page and they're going to have whatever, $10, $20 CPA on a report download. And none of those people become customers but they can report back a $10 CPA to their marketing leader and say, we're getting leads for $10. And the marketing leader is going to look around and because they've been thinking that cost per lead is the right metric, not something later like cost per SQL or customer acquisition cost. They're like, wow, we're paying $50 over there. Google's great. Let's spend more and not look at it any further down funnel because the segmentation of, of B2B companies, as opposed to looking at it as a holistic machine has created this place where you just like take some stuff and throw it over. Um, and people do, there's very little accountability to the overall result. Um, especially in the, and especially in the market, people are smart. People are picking it up mainly because outbound prospecting is working less than it used to. And companies need their marketing team to deliver more. And so smart marketing leaders are, t- are know how to do it and are taking accountability for measuring it the right way and deliver on those, what they need to deliver on. And bad ones will hide a, hide behind MQLs or lead targets and cost per lead targets until they get fired and can't find another job. People, people looking at channels as silos, you know, isolated marketing platforms that like, Oh, Facebook's working, but Google ads isn't. So let's put all of our money from Google ads into, into Facebook. Um, you mentioned looking at it more as a holistic machine. Um, can you, dive into that a little bit further in general like we talked about i am looking for some i'm creating awareness in a lot of different channels paid and organic and waiting for people to funnel through an intent channel and convert to ask for a demo this is for our SaaS customers and so somebody 
here's about me from someone in Revenue Collective and then links listen to the podcast and then follows me on LinkedIn and then sees 20 of the posts, doesn't comment or like them because a lot of people do browse like that and then comes through Google and converts. If you looked at that, most SaaS companies will look at that and be like, yay, we did really good organic search. It's what most people will do. Um, but you, if you understand the system, you actually figure out that the, the net that catches everyone Google is actually not that impactful. It's all the things that before you need to, you need to be there when someone is looking for you, you need to be there, but it's not going to drive your business. You need to drive people in. If you're in a competitive, mature category, you still need to drive people in a lot more people are going to look for you and you're going to be able to win at a certain rate, but I would much rather be the preferred vendor than being, you know, the fourth vendor in an RFP. Forget that. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't do that for, yeah, I hate RFPs. We don't. And so a lot of companies that are a lot of companies that are stuck in search that are not large companies that have a competitive set with larger companies are going to lose because people don't know about them. And when push comes to shove inside of search, their competitor is going to win because they have a better brand. Um, and so when I think about it like a system, I am looking, I'm looking, we spent $50,000 on Facebook. How many demos got influenced by that spend? Okay. 65 demos got influenced. We're spending $700 a demo per influence demo. I love that for 50K CV software. I'm going to spend as much as I can while that number stays the same. And so I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing that. If I don't see that type of impact, then I need to, I need to quantify the impact of that channel. I need to look deeper I need to say, are we giving it to the right people? Is this impression worth a certain amount of money? Because you don't need to, you don't necessarily need to drive demos within an attribution window for it to be a good buy, right? Is it important that all of these people know that we have this feature now? Is it worth the $5,000 to do it? Or should we continue to let our SDRs try and send emails that people never read to figure out the same thing? This is, it literally comes down to no matter what you, what department you've fallen in your organization, sales, marketing, customer success, whatever, you are all responsible for communicating, com communicating with customers, changing their per perception or perspective about something and moving them forward, especially in a net new acquisition. And so you can do that through an SDR. You can do that through a demo of a sales rep, or you can do it through marketing. And I just find that the, the, the way that customers are most receptive to is marketing first, which makes sense, which how it works. And like, if you look at a basic B2C company that sells through Target, it's the exact same, the exact same way that they would look at that. And so what's the, what's the impact on sales cycle for that? If you're, if you're kind of putting more focus on marketing, doing that heavy lifting instead of an SDR? Um, I mean, we've seen sales cycles decrease by up to 50% for the right, um, for the right conversion. It depends on your blend. And now we're starting to get very complicated here. Um, but like having better marketing might, will not necessarily make your outbound sales cycles decrease by 50%, but by driving more people through a demo form that close in 50% of the time of your outbound and having more people do that blends in your sales cycle to being average across all your sources to being less. Um, and so that's what we're focused on. Where is the place? I was saying this the first time I thought about it clearly last night. What is the number one place where people come to you and they convert to customers at the highest rate and in the shortest period of time. And if anyone looks at that data, their data, it will be a, for a SaaS company, it will be a demo request 
for a hardware company, it might be get a quote. Whatever's in the top button on their website will be the number one. Shortest sales cycles, highest win rates, probably slightly lower deal sizes if you have a big outbound motion. It doesn't matter. So I'm going to look at that. Um, And then I'm going to completely optimize the journey to that path to help people get through it in the same organic way that they already got it to. Right. A key point. I'm not running Facebook ads and driving people into that form and thinking that the conversion rates downstream and sales are going to be the same. They're not. How do I get more people to do the same action with the same psychological mindset when they convert? And then I think about moving more people through that path, which seems very like um, I didn't mention in my backstory, but like I spent quite a bit of time in lean manufacturing, Six Sigma process type stuff. And I just look at this and it feels so simple to me. It's like you have all these different lead sources. This one is clearly the best. Why don't we just spend all our time trying to figure out how to get more of these rather than wasting all our time and money on these ones that, that are not as good? Like if you were in, I use this example a couple of times, if you're in a manufacturing facility and somebody bring, brings you all of these different components and you're looking at them and 99.9% of them are trash, you're going to fire that person. Or if it's a supplier, you're going to find a new supplier. Um, but we don't do that in marketing and sales. Yeah. Yep. So... If you could recommend any thought leader to our listeners, somebody that they should listen to and and follow for any reason in any industry, any category, who would you recommend? So first off, I think there's two ways to look at someone who is a a thought leader. You can listen to what they say or you can watch what they do. I'm a lot more interested, like if I'm looking at CMOs that I'm trying to figure out, I'm interested in hearing what they say, but I'm way more interested in going to their website and seeing whether or not it matches. If they're talking about ungating content and then there's a pop-up banner at the top of their website that says download the new report and it's gated, there's a mismatch there, right? And so I think you need to look in both layers. Um, I really... uh, have been enjoying Kyle Lacey's point of view as of recently, CMO of Lessonly. I think he's great. I think he's very experimental, very progressive um, in his thinking. I think we need more of that um, in the B2B SaaS community. I think a lot of people would see the things that he's doing and think that they're crazy. I think that they're incredibly smart. Um, and I think we need we need more of that. Um, also accountable to results and well-spoken and covers some topics that are outside. So I would look not only at what he's saying on LinkedIn, but also about how his company executes. That's cool. And so for our listeners that want to learn more about you, um, find your podcast, find more information about Refine Labs, how can they reach out? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Walker. I think there, there's many of them, um, but I think you'll be able to find me, CEO of Refine Labs. And the podcast, a lot of people have given us great feedback. If you're in, if you're trying to do marketing, specifically B2B, uh, a lot of great insights on that. So that's called the State of Demand Gen podcast, available on Apple and Spotify. All right. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate all your insight and wisdom. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ryan. All right. For everybody listening, you have a great day. Thanks. 